Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. All right, let's take our Bibles and turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. We've been in the book of Ephesians uh, this morning. If you've already looked at your outline, I have one question I'm going to answer today, or at least attempt to answer, and then I'm going to ask from your response, so be prepared at the end. And the question is this, what is it that makes one person's Christian life exciting and another person's not so exciting? I think that's a fundamental question for those of us who embrace the Christian faith. If George Gallup is right, uh, some 75 to 80 percent of Americans would call themselves Christian. And yet we know that uh, even as people espouse that particular claim or faith or religion, that there's clearly a watershed in that great conglomerate of people that separate them left and right. And uh, what separates them is excitement and life as opposed to kind of of embracing of a theory and somewhat of a dullness and no life. What is it that makes one Christian life exciting and another's not? What is it that makes one Christian life fruitful, and another Christian life more barren? Why is it that some people are excited about their Christian life and in living it, and others, well, it's just much more of a, of a ritual, somewhat meaningless, really, practically, experientially, if they would really admit to that. What is it that makes one Christian life kind of wander around in circles, kind of reminds you about the children of Israel in the wilderness? and another Christian life advancing and winning and making a difference? What is it that makes one Christian life always be a taker and another Christian life become this incredible giver? What is it that makes one Christian life become so God-centered while another Christian life, even after years and years of churchianity, just stays self-centered? There's got to be an answer to the proposition, doesn't there? Got to be an answer to that question because that's that's a question that is fundamental in the Christian life. And if someone were to ask me that question straight on because they really felt like they hadn't done much in their Christian life and they wanted to and they were saying, Robert, you need to help me. I need some answers. Where do I go? I would go to the text that's before us, which is a prayer. And that's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. You know, when you fly over the scriptures, just like when you fly over the landscape of planet Earth, there are certain mountain peaks that stand up above the clouds from time to time. You can see them. If you've ever flown in a plane, you can see the topography and the rises and the the earth below. If you were to fly over the scripture, the scripture is not all flat. Within the scripture, though it's all of God, there are certain mountain peaks that kind of stand out. And what's before us this morning in Ephesians chapter 3 is one of those mountain peaks. It's one of those things that stand out and when you really embrace it, because on a casual reading it doesn't mean a lot, but when you really start to think about it and understand it, it stands out as one of the great statements in all of Scripture, all of Holy Writ. And that's what we want to look at today. And I want you to notice how it begins. It begins with a little phrase, for this reason... And an immediate question should come to mind. What is the reason the apostle is talking about? What is the reason here? 
that, that, that elicits this prayer from the apostles' lips. Well, to, to really get a hold on the reason, we, we have to go back because really this phrase is pointing us back into the text, the text from which we've come over the last several months. The reason's not found in our text. The reason comes before our text. And so our eyes have to travel back up through the text. And so kind of follow with me back up through the text and it'll bring us all the way to chapter 3, verse 1. And Paul says... For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And we wonder, well, what, what's he saying here? Because he's even pointing us back further into chapter 2. Well, last week, if you remember, when Bill Wellens preached through this opening part of Ephesians chapter 3, he told us that Paul was be beginning to move into a prayer. And that the reason for that prayer is really found in chapter 2, not chapter 3. But, but as he begins to, to move into this prayer, he gets distracted. And so he moves into once more this great statement of unity between Jew and Gentile. And he goes into that once more. But he gets distracted, someone like you and I do. You know, I found some comfort just in that. Uh, have you ever prayed and, and you said, I'm going to have a time of prayer here. And you began to pray and then to-dos come to your mind. And you stop your prayer and you say, yeah, I've got to go get the car fixed today. Or I've got to talk to Jim. And, and you just find your mind wandering and you can't focus. Well, I want you to know that's just not your problem. That was the Apostle's Paul problem. It's recorded right here in Scripture. He started to go into a prayer and he got distracted. Now he finishes that prayer, but at least for a number of verses, he had some other things that came to mind right in the midst of the beginning of that prayer that he wanted to say to these Ephesian Christians before he finishes. But he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now he does add one thing that we need to know about the reason. He adds the word Gentiles. For this Gentile reason, I'm going to utter this prayer. And then that takes us back to chapter 2. And he tells us what the reason is. And I think we just need to remind ourselves what the reason is. If you go back, it takes us all the way back to verse 11 when he moved into this thought pattern. And he says, after he talks about the salvation that comes to us in Christ, he says in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circum circumcision, that is the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's saying that God did something real special. He had a people. They were an ethnic people. He was working through those people. But there came a time in history where God said, I'm going to bust down the doors and expand. And so he did that. And he reached out to those of us who were not in the initial promise, not part of the initial nation, the holy nation, and included us, not because we deserved it, because you can go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, and we find out, but we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no thought of God. We cared nothing for God. We were going to do it our way, under our values, and the heck with everybody else. But even when we were dead like that, it says that God reached out to us. Suddenly we were joined with Him. And look at verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, God is not some thought. God is not an opinion anymore. 
God has somehow become real because He's taken the initiative to you. And now you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, the Jewish saints, and are of God's household. He's our Father now. And we're having now been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being Himself the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Focus there on verses 21 and 22 because that's the reason. He's saying God has a purpose. And what is His purpose? His purpose is to bring you into this building. He's to make you a temple with the other saints, the ones who were the original people who He signed His covenant of promise with. And now He's going to build you together into a dwelling place of the living God, not just individually, though that's important, but corporately. And it's for that reason, that reason that God is going to build this corporate temple of living humanity that's glorifying to God on earth. For that reason, for that purpose, now He's going to utter this prayer. It is a marvelous prayer. And it's something that man just couldn't think of. You know, there are great temples all over the world made with human hands. But they're unlike God's temple. I've had the privilege of being at a number of temples. I've been to uh, the uh, desert outside Memphis, Egypt, and I've climbed the great pyramids, the step pyramid and the others, and stood in those great tombs and seen this great temple that was built over thousands of years to the Egyptian pharaohs. It's an unbelievable architectural feat. Several years ago, I had the privilege of, of, of driving in a car outside Beijing, China, and going to the great Ming tombs, these great temples that you can see spread out all over the landscape. They're incredible temples. Uh, Bill and I stopped in Paris last year, coming back from Poland, and, and went through the Cathedral of Notre Dame. I've been in Jerusalem with a group, uh, standing on the Holy Mount, walking through the great Muslim temple, the Mosque of Omar. And you know, the Jewish people themselves are looking forward to the day that they can rebuild that third temple that will be the most glorious temple of all in which their coming Messiah would, would then go in and be a part of. There are all kinds of temples in people's minds. But God has a whole different temple in mind. Totally different. Something you would never think of. And it's not made with human hands. It's us. Each one of us is a stone. Himself being the cornerstone. And His goal is to so infuse life and power in each one of us that He can build this living temple of humanity on earth that would demonstrate His reality to the world. That's His goal. That's His temple. And it's a temple that covers the planet. That's the kind of temple He wants to build. But now that's an incredible architectural feat. Because He has to work with stones that also have free wills. <laughs> And he has to do things. And Paul is working with these young Ephesian Christians and he says, that's God's goal for you, to become a temple that makes sense, something that's glorious that the world would marvel at and be drawn to. And it's for that reason that I make this prayer. And this prayer that he makes is the difference between a God-glorifying temple and just some dull rocks that are thrown about that would be meaningless to anyone. That's why this particular passage is so crucial. So let's read it. And we'll just read the first part of the prayer. He says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He, that is God, would grant you, 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, that you may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now that's a prayer for individuals, but it's also a prayer for these people corporately. But if that were to take place, then God would have the temple that He desires on this planet. Now this prayer, just another way of helping you understand the importance of this prayer, this prayer is the bridge between chapters 1 and 3 and chapters 4 through 6. See, chapters 1 and 3 deal with all the resources that we have in Christ, all the blessings that we've, we've had. And all those are real, but they're potential. And then he's going to start in chapter 4, talking about moving from the resources that we have in Christ to the realities that we're to live out in Christ. But there's a catch. And the catch is this passage of Scripture. It's the door that swings both ways between resources and realities. In fact, I would say this to demonstrate the importance of this passage. If you and I do not have this prayer answered in our life, we might as well take a, a, a pair of scissors and cut out four, five, and six. Don't worry about unity. Don't worry about our marriage responsibilities. Let's don't worry about warring in the Spirit. Let's don't worry about speaking the truth in love and all the things that come in four, five, and six because you won't be able to do it. It's impossible. It'll be outside your reach, outside your grasp, even though you have all those resources, because unless Jesus Christ answers this prayer in your life, those things will be impossible through your life. This is the bridge that every man and woman must cross in order for their Christian life to be exciting. And if they don't master that and walk across this bridge, and if God, by His grace, is not faithful to answer this prayer then all that we find in chapters 4, 5, and 6 just simply become a dream, not reality. That's why Paul aches in his heart to make this prayer. And, and, and you get a sense of how important this prayer is because Paul even calls attention to the way he prays. Do you see in verse 14 he says, I bow my knee before the Father? Now that doesn't mean that much on the surface but if you lived in the culture of that day, it'd mean a great deal. Because the Jew didn't normally bow his knee. Uh, we, we, our custom, our traditions as Christians oftentimes is to bow the head to pray. The Jew, when he would pray, just the normal custom of the Jews was that he would stand before God and hold his hands like this, somewhat like our charismatic brothers and sisters, and he would hold his hands up and he would look up and he would pray. That was the normal posture. And so when you come to bow the knee and you put your hands down and your head down and you get on your knees, that's symbolizing something very significant. In fact, if you go through the uh, Old Testament, New Testament, when people would bow the knee, it was usually a time in which they had intense concern. Even if it, maybe it was over a sin they committed that had totally withdrawn the blessing of God and so they were almost begging God to restore the joy of their salvation. Or they were coming with an issue that was so critical, like Hannah when she couldn't have a child. 
And she's on her knees and she's pleading with God to answer something because she knows that without this, there's going to be a sense of, of a lack of fulfillment in her life from that point on. And that's how Paul feels about these Christians. And if he were to, here today, that's how he'd feel about us. He would say, God, unless you answer this prayer and I bow my knee before you, I come to you pleading that you must answer this prayer in these people's lives because if they, you don't, they will not be the holy temple you desire. Even though they're in Christ, even though they're blessed in potential with every spiritual blessing, even though they're saved by faith, they will just look ordinary. So the glory of God's living temple hangs in the balance. And he bows his knee and he utters his prayer. And I think, again, if we were just reading through it, it's very easy to see that there are, there are four things that stand out here. One is he's asking to be strengthened in the inner man. Another, that they may be able to comprehend the love of Christ, then to experience the unfathomable uh, 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 God in their personal life, and then be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the four things he'll utter. We're only going to look at the first one. That's as far as we're going to get. Because this is too great a prayer to pass by. So we're going to start and look at verses 16 and 17 here this morning. And then a number of weeks later, I'll finish this great prayer. But notice the first thing that he prays is that these believers might be strengthened in the inner man. Look at verse 16. He says that very thing, that they might be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. What is the inner man? I think that's a crucial question. Well, the Bible describes us as tripartite creatures. Now... In our, in our Western thinking, we think of those things as being able to be separated like, like a surgeon could separate them. But you can't separate them. They're fused in, but, but they are three components of humanity. Humanity is body, soul, and spirit. That's man. Generically speaking, that's man. Body, soul, and spirit. And the body is often equated, as we'll see this in a moment when we turn over to 2 Corinthians, the body is often called the outer man. It's this shell that the real us inhabits in this life, and it's what we leave behind when we leave this life. We leave behind the outer man. And yet I think we would all agree that in this life, the outer man gets a lot of attention, doesn't it? I mean, you think about it. We, we bathe it every day. At least some of us do. We comb it. We feed it. We exercise it. We spend hours trying to select the right dress for it to dress it up and make it look good. And we can get real carried away from time to time on dressing up the outer man. We can spend inordinate time making it have the right look. And some people, quite frankly, become obsessed with the outer man, especially in this youth-oriented culture. Where it's so important for us to try to hang on to the outer man. But you know, the Bible and reality keep screaming back to us that the outer man, and you might just jot this down, is a depreciating item. I just want you to think about it. Life demonstrates that. The scriptures declare it. And you can do whatever you want to try to hold on to the depreciating item, but it's depreciating. You can tuck it, clip it, implant it. <laughs> you can go off through exercises. You can tighten it. But you can't change the fact that it's on the out in time. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 just for a moment because there's a statement that helps us get more in touch with what the outer man really is. 
or the, and the inner man too. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 16. Simple statement in the midst of this great letter to the Corinthians, but Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. See, he's saying this in just a simplified way. He's saying the outer man's a lost cause, but the inner man is an eternal cause. And if there's anything that the believer should spend some time pampering and feeding and nourishing and caring for and spending time with, it's the appreciating item that makes up his humanity. It's the eternal aspect of his humanity, which is his inner man. And that's why Paul prays for the inner man with these Christians. And uh, he spends his time there. In fact, if you go through all the Pauline prayers throughout the New Testament, the one thing that you're going to see that stands out above anything else is that Paul has... Now, he's not, he's not down on the body. I don't want to give that impression. But the majority of the print that he gives to praying for you and I or for these Christians has little, if any, to do with the shell we carry around this life. And yet, if you think about us as Christians for time to time and the prayer requests that are made, maybe a community group or in a, a large group or in a church such as ours, isn't it interesting if you were to take the same percentages of outer to inner man prayers? See, so often we're praying to hang on to the outer man, aren't we? We're always praying for the healing of the outer man. We're praying that life would be more comfortable for the outer man. And yet, when you look at the prayers of the apostle, he doesn't care much about the outer man. Because the outer man is a depreciating, lost cause. His prayer is for the inner man. Because he knows if the inner man is fed and pampered and taken care of, nothing else matters. Because when all is said and done and life is over, it's not the outer man that goes into eternity. It's the inner man that does. And so he's praying for something that would be renewed day by day, something that would be built up, something that would increase, and I tell you, increase the quality of life. And yet when the time is given to the outer man, but the inner man is starved and neglected, it doesn't matter how good you look on the outside, the quality of life just plummets through life. That's why in the book of Proverbs, it says in Proverbs 4.23, it says, Watch over your heart, and I put in quotes, your inner man, with all diligence. In other words, work hard at paying attention to the inner man, because it says, and it goes on to say, For from it, the inner man, flow the issues of life. All the success or fun or excitement or right perspective in life flows out of the inner man. It has nothing to do with the outer man. That's why it's so exciting to see someone who maybe doesn't have all the physical features of someone that's very beautiful in the world's terms, but they've got this radiant countenance, and they've kind of dealt with that, that sense of the outer man, and they're living by renewing the inner man, and those people, you can't take their happiness away. But you take a person obsessed with the outer man, and life just becomes a grind. 
like I was told this week with Marilyn Monroe. When she figured out that the only way people loved her was for the outer person. And when she figured out, as anybody does, that that outer person was perishing. And that there would come a time where there was no love left for her because there was nothing to offer. It was better to die than to live. Right? But you can't take the inner man away. The inner man, it says here in 2 Corinthians 4, is being renewed day by day. It's an appreciating item. But what is the inner man? Some commentators will say it's, well, it's the soul of man. It's his mind and will and emotions. But you know, I think we all know that those things decay with the body, don't they? Certainly the mind and the, uh, begins to, to kind of become more enfeebled over time, doesn't it? I, I like that uh, tape by Bill Cosby when he gives the spoof over becoming over 40. And just the little things that show the mind starting to go. And one of the little exercises he did on that comedy stage was, he said, don't you remember the times when, when now that you're over 40, when, you, when you're sitting in your chair and you get this bright idea about something you want to do and you get up out of your chair and you go to the other room and then when you get there, you say to yourself, why am I here? <laughs> the only half the audience laugh because you younger people don't know what we're talking about. But it's a funny thing to be sitting in your car wondering, why am I in my car? Where am I going? What am I doing here? That's what we're talking about. The mind begins to perish with age. I like the, the, the quotation. It's kind of an earthy one, but it talks about how do you know that you're getting old? And the answer is, you know you're getting old when first you forget names, then you forget faces, then you forget that your zipper is down. <laughs> And then finally, you forget your zippers up. <laughs> That's how you know you're getting old. The mind goes. The emotions go. We get exaggerated emotions as we get older. We get unstable in some ways. We, we get easily affected. Even our wills go. And some of you guys who are in your 40s, you look at these younger guys in their 20s and 30s, and they're willing to stay up all night, but you just can't will it anymore, can you? You can't go out and run 10 miles like you used to because inside you're saying, that just doesn't make sense anymore. <laughs> By the way, that's called wisdom. <laughs> just so you'll know. But don't tell the younger guys, they'll find out on their own. But you learn those kind of things. Despite all this, you see, we sometimes still give all our attention to the outer man, but Paul doesn't. All his prayers are towards the inner man, and that means if the inner man is not our body, if it's not our mind, will, and emotions, then it can only be one last thing, and that's our spirit. It's that thing according to Ephesians. You can turn back to Ephesians 2 now, or Ephesians 3. It's that part of us that comes alive when the Spirit of God comes into us. You see, the spirit of man was meant to always be empowered by the energy of God. And when God removed himself from man at the fall, the inner man had no energy, so it just went dark. But when the Spirit of God comes into a man, he comes in first into that man's spirit, and that man's brought alive, or that woman's brought alive in the spirit, and suddenly they have a, a new control booth. It's called the spirit. The human spirit engaged with that battery called the Spirit of God suddenly becomes alive and it's redeemed and it's made new and God wants that controlling center then to make a difference in a person's life. And all the resources of God come with the Spirit of God to be unleashed in that person's life. 
That's what we call the potential of the Christian life, and that's given to us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. But now that the Spirit of God is alive in a person's life, how can this, that same power be unleashed in a person's life? And that's what Paul is praying for in Ephesians chapter 3, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. That's what he's praying for here. He's focusing on the inner man. He's bowing the knee. He's coming before the Father, and he's pleading with the Father to release the power of that Spirit in the same way, by grace, that the Spirit came into a person's life. Because Paul knows, apart from this prayer being answered, there's no reason to go on. Notice when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, notice how it starts. Those of you who've been in Bible study methods or the men's fraternity or a women's discipleship group understand these key words are important. But notice chapter 4, verse 1 starts with the word, therefore. Therefore is a summary term. Therefore is saying, now that that's been done, which has come just before, now, therefore, you can go on and do this. But if you don't get this prayer answered in your life, the therefore and all that follows is empty and vain and futile and shouldn't even be attempted, quite frankly. Your spirit, your inner man is the most important part of you. It's what goes on. It's the real you. It's what should take over the mind, will, and emotions and saturate it with new life and ultimately get to the body and perform godly functions. But the real you has to be more than just potential. The real you has to be reality. And that's the difference between an excited Christian and somebody who's just full of a lot of potential. So Paul asks, and here's what's key, and this is what I'm going to press for the rest of the time I have. Paul asked God to act, and I wish you would just write that down. Paul asked God to act. Would you put down, God does not ask me or the Ephesian Christians to act. He asked God to act. He's not asking these believers to do anything. He is going before his father and appealing to his father that he would do something. And notice in verse 16, it says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. That's the important part. Put another way, if he doesn't grant you power, if he doesn't give you additional grace other than just salvation, if he doesn't do this for you, then you can do nothing. If he doesn't release his power in you, then you can do nothing. See, the Christian becomes a Christian and he thinks, okay, I've got God, now I can go do anything I want. That's not true. If I need to be strengthened, I'll go to a Bible study. If I need to feel good, I'll go to a church service. That's the key to giving me power. Let me tell you, it's not the key. It won't give you power. It'll stimulate your mind. It'll turn your emotions a little bit. It will not give you spiritual energy, not authentic spiritual energy. See, God has done something kind of unique. He said to himself, they're going to always have to depend on me. <laughs> That's what he said. See, when we came to Christ, we came to Christ because he moved on us first. And apart from him moving on us first, we would have never come. Now he says, and apart from me granting spiritual power and excitement to them and capacity they'll never want to live my Christian life. They'll never want to. Now, certainly Bible study and those kind of things, prayer, uh, attending men's and women's groups and all that, that can nourish and encourage us. But see, oftentimes we use those things to replace God. And we wonder why we're so limp. 
See, God is saying, no, I'm never going to let those things replace me. See, if you don't understand it, you've got to keep coming to me, asking me to grant you spiritual capacity, spiritual energy, spiritual want to, spiritual excitement. Then you can get in a host of activities that can manufacture like chocolate does for me when I take a couple of hits, a little high for a moment. It can give me that, but that's not a natural high. That's an artificial stimulant. And it doesn't give me from the inner man true, authentic spiritual life. It is manufactured, artificial spiritual life because spiritual life doesn't come from Bible study, doesn't come from attending church, doesn't come from any of those things. True, authentic spiritual life, God says, I hold the keys to that. If you don't come to me, everything else will be artificial, inauthentic substitutes for the real thing. You can do it. You'll impress your friends, but not me. And that's why there'll be so much compromise in your life. That's why there'll be so much hidden sin. That's why there'll be the same struggles and all the things you'll go through, because it's not real. Because you're saying, hey, I've got it. Now I can do what I want. No, you can't. Only God can do it in you. And I don't want to press that point over and over again. That's why he says, Grant, God, would you grant them this? Would you empower them in this way? Would you create in them a big heart for you? Because if you don't, they won't have it. <laughs> it's as simple as that. They'll just live, live a mundane Christian life. Notice, notice he says, grant according to the riches of your glory. You know, according to is an interesting little Greek phrase that's different than uh, out of. He could have used the Greek preposition ek, but he uses the Greek preposition kata. There's a difference. Remember, now this is again going to date me, but Bill talked about the fugitive. Man, that was old last week. Remember the show, The Millionaire? Well, most of you don't, I can tell. But there used to be this show a long time ago called The Millionaire where John Beresby Tipton would give away a million dollars and change a person's life. They would show up at the door and here's a million dollars. Just blow the person away. But his life would never be the same. See, he was a multimillionaire who would give according to his riches. Because what it would do, it would make another person rich. You could give, God could give out of his riches, and he could tip you $10. That's out of riches. But that doesn't mean a lot, because it doesn't do much for me. Paul is going before his father, who, who owns all this spiritual wealth, and he's making a very bold prayer here. Not, God, would you tip them, but, God, would you enrich them according to the richness that you yourself possess? Make them rich. And if you make them rich and you unleash this power in them, there'll be this incredible want to. Would you do that? That's what he's asking them here. And he's saying it's all because of your grace. And Paul is very mindful of the fact that as God looks at his children, that God could in all justice and all holiness, say, no, I won't do that. And if he were to say no to these Ephesian Christians, then that means no matter how much they get together to pray and talk to one another, they'll basically be a lifeless group because only God has the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Only he can grant that. Now, I'm speaking pretty high lofty spiritual terms. And some of you are going to say, what is he talking about? 
If you can only remember this, remember this. You are not going to be able to pump up your Christian life with spiritual activities. If those things are good, but they're not the source. They're not the essence. Just like the body is not the essence of me. The real me is the inner man. And God is the essence of spiritual life. Joined to that inner man, granting by his own sovereign will life on me that then becomes a part of me that then wants to be expressed through me. That's it. And that's why if you're not spending time with God, but you're spending a lot of time at church, you've missed the essence of spiritual life. Spending all your time in certain Christian activities is like spending all your time at Park Plaza looking at the right clothes. You're just dressing up. But that doesn't mean you're different. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't think that God will automatically grant you his wealth just because you're a child of God. He will grant it only when we petition him for it, knowing we're desperately dependent on it. It's the only time. It's kind of like Jacob with the angel. Remember, Jacob wrestled with the angel all night. Was he a child of God? <laughs> yes, but all night he fought with the angel, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Because Jacob realized, if God doesn't bless me, I can work forever, and I'll not even get close to the authentic reality. Well, today's Christian is often, I think, kind of dull, really. And I think he's dull because he's missed that very simple but very, very profound thought. But notice Paul goes on to say, he says, I'm asking that you strengthen them according to your riches with power through the Spirit in the inner man that is my spirit or their spirit. And then notice the next line in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that word dwell is the key to understanding, again, this passage. You know, it's used 47 times, kata keto. It's used 47 times in the New Testament. Most every time it's in reference to just a person living in a city. Like, for instance, when it talks about Mary and Joseph going to live in Nazareth, it uses this word, katoiketo, to mean they settled down, they lived there, they planted the flag and moved in. And here's what I think Paul is saying here. He knows that these Ephesian believers have Christ in their heart, but he's praying that Christ would move from being a visitor inside to a home dweller. Do you see the difference? Have you ever had relatives come and visit you for a while? And they're visiting, and they overstay their visit? You know, there's just something that finally begins to rub on you after a while, doesn't it? I mean, you can't come down and, and, and kind of slop around. You're always picking up stuff to make the house look like it really never looks. But you want them to think they think, you know, that that's the way it looks. And if they stay there for very long, it just, it just becomes tense because you can't have those earthy conversations in the morning. You can't stumble down and have some Cheerios in your underwear or anything like that because guests are there. And so you're always having to put up a front. You know, the reality is, is when Christ is just a visitor, I mean, he's there, but when he just kind of feels like a visitor, you can't ever relax. He's never settled down. You're always kind of feeling on edge like you have to fight with him or, you know, he's going to see something you don't want him to see or, or whatever. It's just a little bit of an irritation. He's overstaying his welcome. 
Paul's saying, you know why I'm praying for you? That God will release his spirit so that you, as he goes on to say, would understand how much he loves you where you can finally embrace him as a home dweller, not as a visitor. You can say, come sleep in my bed. Come eat at my table. Come tell me what to do. Because you're, you're part of the family. See, when that happens, then a Christian life comes alive. When there's no more fighting and conviction and struggling and all the things that take place with a visitor, when it's a home dweller, then there's still at times a, a, a feeling of getting upset or out of control, but you can run to your father, you can run to the living Christ because he's part of the family. There are no secrets. You're not trying to resist. You know there's unconditional love even apart from your failures. That's what we're talking about. It's only then we become excited Christians because Christ becomes the passion of our life and the center post of our life, not somebody whose bags are still unpacked in our life. But in that bag is all the potential of an exciting Christian life. Will you let him unpack it? See, that's what we're talking about here. Is he still being treated like a visitor? Is church, a good way to measure this, is the only time you get excited about the Christian life is when you get stimulated through the outer man. Come and hear a great sermon. Man, that was great. Get around an excited Christian. Boy, it's great being around them. But apart from the outer stimulants, you're dull. That's manufactured Christianity. That's not real stuff. Real stuff is when you get up in the morning on your own, by yourself, and you feel like, I want to live for God. And the question is, how do you feel like that? How do you get there? Not on your own. That life isn't even you. It's granted to you according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And unless you come to him and ask him for it and beseech him for it, you'll never have it. Let me close this morning with an application. And the application will be this. And we're going to take, I told you, we're going to take about five minutes to do this. So everybody just kind of relax for a minute. And it's this. I could end the sermon like we normally do here. And that is, I could say, let's bow our heads in a closing prayer. And we could pray. And you could leave. But you know, I think I would feel like I've defied this text. Because you know what? When Paul went to pray, he didn't do it in the usual way, did he? And so I'm going to ask for you to make a thought, to think about this. And I don't want anybody to feel any pressure because there's no pressure here. But I'm going to have Alan play. And what I'm going to ask this, if you're in one of these three categories, if you would like to pray for your own spiritual life, I'm going to ask you to come to the altar here and pray. Just in the five or six minutes, whenever we feel like closing, I don't want you to be looking at your watch because I've spent the whole time allowing us to have this application. But if you'd feel like praying, I need to pray for my inner man. I need to ask God, God help me because you're the only one who can make my Christian life exciting. Then, and you really want to do that, then I want you to come. As you know, this is an intercessory prayer. Paul's praying for others. If you would like to pray for somebody, a family member, a friend, a relative, and you'd like to pray that God would do this according to his riches and overrule even their will, that he would just do it because he overruled our will to find Christ. You want to pray that and really mean that? Then the altar's here.
And then lastly, if someone comes forward and you want to pray for them, you see them come forward and kneel here and you just want to pray for them because you know they're struggling, then feel the freedom to come and kneel behind them and place your hands on them and pray for them. That to me would be true to the New Testament text. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.